Who would say they have a pretty good life in terms of a nice home, a comfortable lifestyle, a, a solid job, maybe a, a loving and supportive spouse, a significant other, kids that are uh, just a blessing to you? Not a perfect life, but you would say, I've got a pretty good life. If that's you, raise your hand. All right. Um, now, here's the thing. We can all have pretty good lives. And indeed, if you compare our lives, most of us as Americans, to probably the majority of the world, we don't only just have pretty good lives. We have lives that a lot of people would envy. And yet, while the majority of, uh, the majority of us would say, I have a pretty good life, I also know that the majority of us tend to, what's the word, complain about our lives, what we don't have, what we wish our spouse was, how we wish our kids were, what's missing, what we, what we don't like about our lives. Why is it that we can have a pretty good life and yet complain about those things that we don't have? I believe it's because we have an unhealthy heart. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is how to overcome an unhealthy heart. And I believe, and the Bible teaches us, and science and psychology have discovered that indeed we all, almost all of us, operate from an unhealthy heart. Here's what it says in Jeremiah. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You and I operate from an unhealthy heart, whether we realize it or not. Some of you will say, not me. Well, that first part is, you know, don't forget, it's deceitful. So you're convincing yourself you don't. But the reality is all of us do. We all operate from this unhealthy heart. Now, as we've talked about in this series, when I mention the word heart, I'm not talking about our physical heart. I'm talking about the deepest part of who we are, the seat, the center of our mind, our will, our emotions, that part that makes us who we are and an unhealthy heart stems from deception, from toxic lies, from experiences, from trauma, from things that have happened to us and it causes us to operate from a, a, a sick, a desperately sick heart. In psychology, they have coined a term that is uh, called cognitive bias. And what that means is your cognitive Cognitive bias is the filter through which you view all of life. Um, and normally, it causes you to see things wrongly. So this is uh, my definition of a cognitive bias. Cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking, shaping how you view yourself, others, and your circumstances, really all of life. And a cognitive bias, that filter, that frame from which you view everything causes you to look at yourself, others, and circumstances wrongly. You make wrong determinations, but you're convinced you're right because it's based on your experiences, your preferences, um, what you've gone through, what you've endured, your prejudices, all those kind of things. And it causes, it creates this entire framework in our hearts that we filter everything through. And oftentimes those are developed early in life or again through a trauma, through an experience, through a wounding of some type. So for example, let's say you grew up and you uh, were around an abusive male, a, man fig a male figure in your life, a father, um, uh, uh, an uncle, a teacher, a coach, and they were abusive physically, verbally, emotionally. They were harsh, critical, mean. As you grow up, 
very often the cognitive bias that you will develop, the filter that will be um, applied to your life will uh, be the filter through which you view all men. So all men are mean. All men are harsh. All men are abusive. Men aren't worthy of trust. They're not worthy of honor. They're not worry, worthy of respect. Even if the man of which you're speaking, those, none of those things are true. They are worthy of honor. They are trustworthy. They are kind. They are sacrificial. Your cognitive bias, your filter, your sick heart, your unhealthy heart will cause you to view all men that way. It's how you view others. So we, we, um, we misapply this. Again, it's, it's a, a systematic error in thinking. So when it comes to other people, it will be something like this. Now, I know this is none of you, but it, it could be for those out there. So your cognitive bias might say all Democrats are evil. They're all evil. They're all nuts. Or all Republicans are, um, are greedy. You might look at it like um, all Christians are hateful and intolerant. Or you might say anyone who's associated with the homosexual community has an agenda. Or all white people are racist and privileged. Or all black people are entitled and violent. The list can go on and on. We could look at it in so many different ways. But what it causes us to do is to view other people through this lens, through this filter, and it's not true. But we believe it's true, we believe it's right because we deceive ourselves because of our own experiences, because of what we've gone through, because of our, our, our um, hurts in life. We believe we're right. You can, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. You say, no, I'm right, they're wrong, whatever, you, whatever it is and whoever they are. And so we have to learn how do I overcome this sickness, this unhealthiness in my heart. It happens when we apply it to others. It happens when we apply it to situations. Maybe you've experienced something like this. I know I have, where you can watch from the outside two people go through the exact same experience, and yet they walk away completely different, uh, interpreting it very different because of their cognitive bias. So let me give you an example. Uh, you got an athlete on a team and a coach, and the coach uh, calls two uh, players to the side, and they say to both those players, these are the things you need to work on. You need to get better. You need to improve. Stop doing that. Start doing this. One player, because of their cognitive bias, says, you know what? All the coach ever does is point out what I do wrong. They don't like me. They don't care about me. They don't believe in me. It's just always what I do wrong. I guess I stink. I guess I shouldn't even bother playing. I don't even know why I'm the, on, the, on the team. I'm ready to quit. Another player hears that and says, coach believes in me. Coach likes me. Coach sees something in me, and they want me to get better. So I'm going to work harder because of those things that they pointed out. Exact same situation, exact same words, exact same circumstance, but walking away vastly different. The facts don't change. The situation doesn't change. What changes is the filter through which you view that, your cognitive bias. It happens how we apply it to ourselves. Oftentimes, something happens in your life, and how you view yourself is filtered through this. So something happens, you, you struggle in school, uh, maybe in, in first, second grade, you're just you know, having a hard time understanding some reading concepts or mathematic concepts, one plus one, and you're just struggling with that. As a one-year-old or a first grader, that makes sense. 
and, you're, and, and so you're struggling with that, but then you say, you know what, I'm just dumb, I'm stupid, I'll never be able to, I'll never accomplish, I'll never measure up, I'm unloved, I'm unlikable, I'm rejected, nobody cares about me, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm unattractive because somebody said something to you when you were in fifth grade about the outfit you were wearing, and it is stuck in your mind, and now that is the filter through which you view everything. So you view yourself through that cognitive bias. And then what happens is, as we view ourselves that way, these things all become enmeshed. So we don't just view ourselves this way and others this way and situations this way, they come together. So we view ourselves a certain way, and what do we do? Because of our biases, because of the filters, we then begin to compare ourselves to other people. So uh, let's say you begin to compare your body, how you look, your, your, your body image. You may like or not like the way you look, but as you begin to view yourself that way and view others that way, you begin to judge them. I don't like the way I look. I'm getting old. My body's changing. I'm jealous. I compare myself to that young 25-year-old. And because I don't like it and because of my cognitive bias, I don't say, what's wrong with me? I say, they're dressing immodestly. And we throw that on them because we don't want to deal with us. We compare, compare lifestyles. And rather than saying, how do I handle my money? We start to compare and judge how they handle their money. So when we, we filter ourselves through our cognitive bias and others, it causes us to judge. We look at um, families. We're looking at our family, and then we judge how they're raising their kids. I can't believe that they would do that with their kids because we don't want to deal with our own stuff. We do it with our knowledge. We, we, we think we're smart or not. We struggle with that. So what do we do? I hear people do this all the time. None of you, but other people. They'll, they'll say, I can't believe somebody would run a business like that. And I'll look at them and say, are you in that industry? Well, no. Do you own a business? No. What do you do? I'm unemployed. Well, I'm glad you know how to run a successful business. How's the unemployment going? <laughs> but... We, we judge how our manager, how our boss, how the pastor, how someone handles something because we know better based on our experiences, our preferences, the filter through which we view everything. We do it with our spirituality. We, we look at ourselves and go, I'm not gonna grow. I'm not where I wanna be. I'm struggling in my faith, whatever it is. And so we, we compare ourselves to others and so we start judging them. I can't believe they're living out their faith like that even though the Bible in Romans makes it so clear, to each one, they will stand or fall before their own master. Who are you to judge another's servant? He's talking the fact that all of us are living as servants to Jesus Christ. And Jesus will deal with each person individually, but we love to compare. And when we compare, we judge. And so this is just something that happens over and over until it gets to the point where the situation, the individual way we view ourselves and the other person all become one. So what happens is who in life doesn't deal with stuff? Nobody. We all deal with stuff, stuff with our marriage, our kids, our work, our neighbors, our finances, our health. We all deal with stuff. But we begin through our bias to say, I'm going to compare my stuff to your stuff. 
And because I know my stuff's worse than your stuff, I can say to you and I can say to everyone, no one's ever been through what I've been through. Your stuff's not as bad as my stuff. You don't understand. And so we never deal with the root issue in our hearts because of the cognitive bias, the sickness, the desperate sickness, the unhealthiness in our hearts. But there is a way by God's grace that we can change the filter through which we view things. God can come in and he could say, I want to change your heart because if God changes your heart, he'll change your life. But you have to let God change your heart. So Paul, we've mentioned him throughout this series. Paul was uh, an apostle. He had this amazing experience with the resurrected Jesus and he sent out as an apostle all around the known world. And he has this desire to go to Rome, to go to Rome and preach the message of Jesus Christ because Rome is the center of the Roman Empire. And he knows if I can get to Rome, if I can preach the gospel, if God will open a door for me to preach to Caesar, then I know that the message of Jesus Christ will explode around the world. That's what he wants. That's what he hopes. That's what he desires. And he makes it to Rome, but he's not standing in the streets preaching the message of Jesus. He makes it to Rome in prisons in chains, in prison for the gospel of Jesus because he was preaching. He's under house arrest, facing death, waiting execution. He doesn't have any freedom. Eight hours, uh, he's chained to one guard. They chain him to the next guard for another eight hours, and then they swap out. He is chained to someone 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, the way most of us would view that through our cognitive bias, through our filter, would be something like this. If we were writing to people, telling them what happened, we'd say, now, listen, my dear friends, listen, my brothers and sisters, you need to understand what happened to me is so unfair. Oh, it's so unfair. It's, it's not right. I've been mistreated. I've been hurt. I've been falsely accused, and now I'm in prison. I've been beaten. I've been tortured. Things have been said about me, and none of it's true. I just need you to know that life is hard. It's so hard. And as a matter of fact, if this is what serving God is all about, if this is what serving Jesus gets you, I'm done with Jesus and I'm done with his church. And you should be too. That's the bias through which most of us would filter that situation. But thank God, Paul doesn't. Paul explains to us and shows us how to view it through a different filter for himself and for others. This is what he says. I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters, that everything, everything, everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speaking God's message without fear. Listen. That is a completely different way to view things. Yes, difficult things have happened. Yes, I've had to endure. Yes, I've had to uh, press through some things. Yes, I've been mistreated. But listen, I can view that and say it's not fair and it's not good and it's not right and where's God? Or I can say God will take all of that and use it for my good and his glory. But that's completely changing your point of view. It's completely changing your filter. It's a different way of looking at things. See, you and I, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot control what happens, but you can control how you view it. 
And that's how you begin to shift your cognitive bias. That's how you begin to shift the filter, the framework through which you view everything. But if you're not willing to make that change, then you'll never have the life that God wants you to have because all of us have sick hearts, desperately sick. And so we need to say, my heart will deceive me and it's sick and it will tell me things that aren't true, but it will convince me that they are. And so if you want to change your point of view, change your perspective, change that filter, it starts by changing some underlying assumptions. And one of the underlying assumptions is this. If something bad happens to me, God isn't in it. And if something good happens, then God's blessing it. That if I'm blessed, it's God's pleased with me. And if something difficult happens, God's upset with me. Paul says, hold on, I'm in prison. I was beaten. And something good came as a result of it. So if we just want to make it about externals, then we'll always be measuring everything by how it makes us feel, what we like about it. And if we don't like it, then we say God wasn't in it. God wasn't there. God doesn't care. But if we change our underlying assumption to say, no matter what I go through, God is there with me. He'll walk me through it. He'll see me through it. And he will use everything for my good and his glory if I will change my perspective. So let me give you an example of what this could look like. You're at work, and your boss is just riding you. They're, 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 they're riding you. You've got to be more dependable. You've got to work harder. You've got to produce more. You have to um, meet these targets and these deadlines. They're just riding you. Your filter, your, the wrong underlying assumption is, well, God, where's God in this? Tired of my job. He must be a sexist. She must not like me. They must be intolerant. They're just about uh, hitting goals and, and the bottom line. And so it makes you angry, bitter, resentful. Um, you're not motivated to work. You're ready to quit. You feel overwhelmed and undervalued. You say, why even, why even try? But if you say, regardless of what I'm going through, God is here. God wants to move. God wants to work. You change your underlying assumptions. Your boss is riding you just as hard as he's riding anyone else. But instead of getting mad and angry and bitter, you say, why are they acting like this? Maybe her husband just left her. Maybe he's having issues with his children. Maybe she feels isolated and alone. Maybe he's stressed out about finances. Maybe their boss is riding them even harder and they're riding me. Maybe growing up, they were all about performance and they were in an abusive situation and they were unloved and uncared for. And maybe, just maybe, God's placed me here at this time in this season, less about my job performance and more about how I can advance God's kingdom in this person's heart and life. So I'll start praying for them and trying to find ways to help them and encourage them. Change your underlying assumption, it changes everything. Listen, I walked through that. I worked, years and years ago, I worked at IBM, and I remember one day my boss said, hey, I need to meet you in my office. I went up to his office, and he just lit into me, lit into me. Basically said, if you don't shape up, I'm gonna fire you. And I thought, what did I do? He said, you know what you did. I said, no, I don't. Tell me what I did, I'll change it. And he just said, don't give me that attitude. And I sat there, and I thought, well, God, that's what this guy wants, fine. He's on his own. I, he had talked to me. I knew he was struggling in his marriage. And I thought in my own little head, you know what? 
Think I'm going to pray for his marriage? I'm not going to pray for him at all. He gets what he deserves. Talk, talk to me like that. I said, fine. You'll never have a problem with me again. I get up with my attitude, start walking out the door, and as clear as I can hear God, he says, really, son? Really? This man is hurting. This man is struggling. This man is going through some things. And all you can see is that he was mean to you and unkind to you. Well, like my son died on a cross. He, he got it a little worse than you're ever going to get it. And I thought, well, Lord, I hadn't thought about it like that. And I stopped. I'm opening up the door, and I stopped, and I turned. Guy name was Frank. I said, Frank, I want you to know. You'll never have a problem with me again. I will do my best. But I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your, your marriage. And I'm going to do everything I can to be the best employee that you need and to help you any way I can. We never had a problem again. A few months later, maybe we, he had a problem, but a few months later, he, he, he transferred me out of his department. Um, but, but, but it was a positive thing. I still, my department and my new department and his, we still worked uh, uh, closely. I was down there all the time. We interacted. We never had another problem. But I had to change my, pers my perspective. I had to change my underlying assumptions. I had to change the filter through which I viewed that. So how do we do that? How do we begin to overcome an unhealthy heart? Because if, if the Bible tells us we can, then it's going to also tell us how we can. So here's the first thing we need to do. We need to look for God in every situation. Listen to me, whatever you look for, you'll find. Whatever you look for, you'll find. Whatever you look for, you'll find. You want to look for something that irritates you, bothers you, how someone disappointed you, let you down, did something you wish they hadn't done, didn't say something the right way, walked the wrong way, breathed the wrong way, snapped their fingers the wrong way. If you want to find something wrong, you'll find it. If you want to find something you're mad about, you'll find it. You want to find something that you don't agree with, you'll find it. But if you'll look for God, if you'll look for him in every situation, I promise you, you'll find him. If you say, God, where are you moving in this situation? Where are you moving in this circumstance? Where are you moving in a powerful way? You'll find him. This is what Jeremiah wrote. He said, when you look for me, meaning God, when you look for God, you'll find him when you look for him with all your heart. If you look for God in the middle of something difficult, you'll find him. It's easy to look for the things you don't like. It's so much more difficult to look for God, where his kingdom is moving, where his spirit is, is at work, where lives are being changed and transformed. But you can look for where things aren't working, things are happening that you don't like and things you don't agree with. Corey Temboom was uh, imprisoned in a Nazi uh, concentration camp for sheltering Jews in World War II. And while she was there, she was in a barracks and it was infested with fleas. It was horrible. I mean, she said every person she wrote, every person was just covered in flea, flea bites. It was miserable. And she said, I started getting frustrated, angry. God, bad enough I'm in this concentration camp. I'm in prison. My freedom's taken away, and my life is hanging by a, a, in the balance, and now I got to deal with fleas. That would be the normal response. And then God said, can you see me in this? And she realized very, very few of the guards, very few of the Nazi soldiers would come into that barracks because they didn't want to get covered in fleas either. So it allowed those women in that barrack to have undisturbed Bible studies, to pray, to encourage each other, to, to stay strong in their faith. 
You can look for where God is working in a situation or you can simply allow the situation to make you mad and angry. The next thing is this. Thank God for what didn't happen. Oh, it is so, so easy to look at what happened, what you didn't like, how, uh, what hurt you, what bothered you, what irritated you. It's so easy to say, God, why did you let this person die? Why did you let this accident happen? Why did you let the economy crash right before I was going to retire and my, my retirement account went from uh, decent to, well, I'm going to have to uh, work at Walmart. God, I don't like what happened. It's easy to look at what you don't like. It's so much more difficult to say, God, what did you save me from? God, what did you keep me from? Thank you, God, for that door that didn't open. Thank you for that need that I didn't face. Thank you that uh, this difficulty didn't enter into my life. So you work somewhere, and let's say um, you're working real hard to meet a target. Because you know if you hit this target, you get a really big bonus. And no matter how hard you work, it's just out of reach. And then the, uh, the window for meeting that target closes and you miss the bonus. And the boss calls you up and says, hey, you missed the target. It's easy to get mad that you didn't get the bonus. But how about thanking God that you didn't lose your job? How about thanking God that you didn't get reassigned somewhere else? That's so much more difficult, but when you do that, it changes your perspective. So uh, the church I was at before I came here, some really mean, hurtful things happened. So much so that they basically said, we don't like you, we hate you, we wish you were dead, don't ever come back to the church. I had to preach the next Sunday, that was awkward. Um, that was on a Saturday morning. Sunday I had to preach. But you know, in that, basically by the end of how things resolved, they said, we're, we're, we're done, we parted ways. It, would, it was so easy for me. God, why did I lose this position? God, why did uh, you let this happen? I've got a wife and kids and mortgage and things to provide for and things I have to do. It's easy for me even now to look back at it like that. But what didn't happen? God didn't leave me there for the last 10 years. Oh, thank God. It was full of demons. I mean, you know. Every, every person on staff there ended up having an affair. I don't, I'm not saying I would have. I'm just saying, thank God. Thank God for what didn't happen. He didn't leave me there. And if he had left me there, I wouldn't be here 10 years later saying, look what God's doing. So it's easy to look at why did you let this happen? It's much more difficult to say, God, thank you for what didn't happen. But there was this guy named Joseph and Joseph's brothers hated him. They hated him so much that they planned to kill him. At the last minute, they decided not to kill him, to sell him into slavery. He ends up as a slave, falsely accused, in prison, and then, by God's grace, he ends up second in command of all of Egypt. It's easy to say, God, why did you let this happen? But what didn't God allow? He didn't allow his brothers to kill him. God, thank you that you didn't take my life from me. And this is what Joseph said about his brothers. You, my brothers, plotted evil against me but God turned it to good. It's so easy to point out the things that you don't like that did happen. But what about thanking God for the things that didn't happen? It changes your perspective. And the last thing is this. Let Jesus frame your perspective. Not society, not culture, not media, not influencers, not your friends, not your blogs, and certainly not yourself. Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. 
They will, we will fool ourselves. Don't let anyone frame your perspective except Jesus. Because when you allow Jesus to frame your perspective, what happens is you begin to view everything differently. Instead of rejection, you find acceptance. Instead of fear, you find faith. Instead of obstacles, you see opportunities. Instead of curses, you see blessings. Instead of um, inadequacy, you find confidence. Instead of weakness, you find strength and power and boldness. But if you only view it from your own perspective, what you'll see are the things that you don't like. But if you say, Jesus, frame my perspective, because when he frames it, he allows everything to look different because what we see is that he can use everything for our good and his glory, for our good and his glory. It doesn't mean he causes everything to happen. It doesn't mean everything that we go through is good. It means he can use everything for our good and for his glory. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Rome. God makes all things, all things, all things, the hard things and the good things, the difficult things and the great things, the things you wish you never happened and the things you hope for. He makes all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you say, God, I want to see this from the perspective of Jesus, it will change how you view everything. But that means you have to say, God, I'm going to take a step back. I am going to acknowledge that my heart is wicked and my heart can deceive me. And my heart, because of that, is sick. And I will view things wrongly. I will have systematic errors in my thinking, in my heart, how I filter situations and people and myself. And God, I need you to change that. You need to change the underlying assumptions that I have that if something bad happens, you're mad at me, you're upset with me, that you're not blessing me, and if something good happens, that somehow you're pleased. And that there is no way in which you would let me walk through difficult times. If you believe that, you need to change your underlying assumption. God will let you go through things. But here's what I've learned, and here's what I hope you walk away with today. Do not view God's goodness through your circumstances. View your circumstances through God's goodness. What that means is not everything is good, but God is good. His character is consistent. His, his character is immutable, unchangeable. God is good because God is good. God isn't good because your circumstance is good. If God's good because your circumstance is good, then when your circumstance is bad, that makes God bad. But that doesn't change. Your circumstance doesn't change God. A perspective that says, if good is happening to me, God's good, and if bad's happening to me, God's bad, that is a, um, that's an infant, that's a toddler. I've got a four-year-old grandson. That's how, a, that's how an infant, a child, a toddler views things. But, but the Bible tells us, grow up, grow up, grow up in your faith. So at some point, we have to say, okay, some bad things have happened, some difficult things, some things I don't like, some things I wish to God didn't happen, but God, you're still good. And because you're good, you can use this for my good and your glory. I wish I didn't have to go through this. I wish I didn't have to endure it. For some of you, I know what you're going through, and I would to God that I could take it all away. Oh, I would to God that I could take all the disappointment, the pain, the hurt, all of that away, the death, the disease, the sickness, the abuse, the hard words, I would to God that I could take it all away, but I can't. But if you'll change the filter through which you view it, you'll see God, God can use this. He is good because he is good. 
not because he only lets good things happen to me. So God wants you to overcome an unhealthy heart because when you overcome an unhealthy heart, you stop comparing yourself, you stop viewing people the wrong way, you stop looking at your situations in an unhealthy way, you begin to see God in everything. You begin to thank him for not only what he's done, but you thank him for the things that he hasn't done and you allow Jesus to be the framework through which you view everything because if you allow God to change your heart, it will change your life and some of you your lives aren't where you want them to be and it starts by saying God change my heart change the filter of my heart change the cognitive bias in my heart change the framework in my heart through which I view everything including you God Heavenly Father, we come to you right now, and I'm asking by your Holy Spirit, by your grace, right now, move in each heart and each life. I'm going to ask you right where you are, just place your hand on your heart and ask him, God, show me, show me, show me where that, that filter needs to be changed, that framework needs to be replaced, where that cognitive bias is operating, where my heart is unhealthy and it needs to be healed. If you say to yourself, I don't have that, Dig deeper. If you say to yourself, I've dealt with all that, plunge farther into the depths because the heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick. And what I'm telling you is this, until you leave this earth and step into the next world, there's always gonna be those areas of sickness in your heart, but God is a God of healing. God is a God of miracles. God is a God who wants to change you and perfect you and make you more and more like his son, Jesus. So just begin to ask him. Maybe you know what it is. You know exactly what it is. Just begin to ask. God, change that, remove that, heal that. Help me to overcome that by your grace through your Holy Spirit. Oh God, I'm asking you. Now for some of you, the biggest filter that you need to replace is a filter that says God doesn't love me. God's mad at me. God's angry at me. God doesn't want me. God can't accept me. God could never accept me because of what I've done. The truth is God loves you. He cares about you. He's been waiting for you. He loves you so much. He sent his own son, Jesus, to die a horrible death. But on the third day, he was raised from the dead. His perfect son who never sinned, who never messed up, he died for you, but he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you call on his name, if you say, God, I want a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, he opens his arms and says, come on in. He's not mad at you and he will never, ever, ever reject you. And if this morning you would say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I've never done this before. I want to give him my life or I've wandered so far. I need to come home. Right where you are, just raise your hand. If you're joining us online, click the button that says, I want to give my life to Christ. For the rest of you, I'm going to ask you whether you're praying this prayer for the first time or you're here with us, would you, follow, would you repeat these words after me? But if you're praying these words and you mean them, you are giving your life to Christ. You're entering a new dynamic that you've never experienced before. Would you repeat after me? Heavenly Father, I come to you now and I thank you for Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a horrible death, but was raised from the dead by the power of your spirit. And because of that, I can come to you I give you my life and I receive new life in Christ. Forgive me for all my sins and make me new. 
fill me now with your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you. I can tell others about you. And I can look forward to an eternity spent with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, welcome to God's family. Uh, family. If you prayed that prayer online, click the follow-up button so we can connect with you, help you take your next steps with Christ. If you prayed that prayer here and you meant it afterward, please come talk with someone. We want to help you experience this new life. But now for all of you, would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing a song about giving God our whole heart. And for you, you may know where those areas are that you need to surrender to God. So I'm going to ask, as this song is played, if you would say there's an area I need to surrender, I need healing, I need to overcome some area of unhealth in my heart, please come forward. Come to the altar. Let God move in your life. There'll be prayer teams up here to pray with you, to pray for you, and watch and see what God wants to do.